and welcome to Historical Frictions, a historical fictions podcast where we delve into the nitty-gritty of history, fiction, and everything in between. I'm Tess, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Hilary. Hello. Today, we are discussing our next novel, Tidelands by Philippa Gregory. But first of all, how are you going, Hilary? How was the last fortnight for you? Yeah, it's been not too bad. Just doing a lot of pottering around with thesis stuff. I've been listening to a lot of authors' talks online. A lot of digitizations been happening of authors' talks, so I've been absorbing all of those. And next week, which also might interest some of our listeners, the Hay Festival has been made online as well. So I'll be listening to a lot of late night sessions at like 11.30pm of certain historical fiction authors. So that's going to be fun. For those uninformed of us, what is the Hay Festival? Oh, good point. I actually don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the largest writers' festival in the UK. It takes place okay. here in May, just mm-hmm. inside the Welsh border at a mm. place called Hay. If anyone's watched the Netflix TV series Sex Education, it takes place in the area that that is filmed and it's <laughs> so beautiful. But yeah, I was intending to go there for my research trip, which was going to take place in 2021. But unfortunately, because of the coronavirus and also the stipulation that most likely international travel won't be on until 2023, I won't be able to go there. But Hilary Mantel is talking at this this one, so 2020's mm-hmm. festival. So I will be tuning into her live conversation. So I think... Cool. In a way, it's kind of that's one positive thing. I won't have to spend thousands of dollars getting over there, but at the same time, I'll be able to get all the content that I need. Yeah, I've had a couple of um, conferences that I've noticed have gone digital. That I, there's one, there's a game studies conference in Malta, I think, that's going to be online Malta. now, so I can go, which I definitely wouldn't have gone to otherwise. I wouldn't have mailed it no, this year. So, I was so there's a little bit of benefit to that. Yeah, I was talking about it with my supervisor yesterday, just like that idea that whilst it's not positive, it's like kind of a positive because, and we kind of hope that this stuff can be ongoing because I've already tuned into Mm. some interstate authors events that I probably wouldn't have been able to attend or even known about just if life had just been normal. So yeah, it'd be interesting. Apparently the Melbourne Writers Festival this year is also going digital. So that will be a positive for me because part of my thesis is looking at like authors events and audience interaction with historical fiction authors but anyway that's <laughs> that's a ramble about my uh personal yeah, life. <laughs> no, that's, i think that's probably quite relevant to our listeners as well yeah might be wanting to, to to tune into some of those and as we as we go ahead if we're going to any online events i say going to an event but if, if we're tuning into anything we think is going to be interesting to our listeners we'll try and post it on our social media and let you know what things we're heading to in case you guys want to want to have a look at it as well if there's any yeah. particular events yeah i'll post about hillary mantel she's yeah, next weekend that's a good idea as well as this weekend maggie o'farrell who's just written the novel hamnet which is based on the death of shakespeare's son hamnet mm-hmm. who then he wrote the play hamlet about so i've listened to a couple of authors talks with her already and it sounds like the most fascinating book so she's also talking on the weekend and yeah and greg jenner people might know from horrible histories as well he's talking about his new book dead famous which is sort of about the history of celebrity in sort of the last you know 500 600 years i think so that yeah i'll post about those in our instagram stories or something like that cool yeah Yeah. i think that's a good idea anyway we'll get on to today's topic (laughs) Mm, let's get down to it so if you haven't listened to our previous episodes yet you definitely should we have an introductory episode about who we are and what this pod is about and we've also got a first episode out where we look at the tattooist of Auschwitz and we released a bonus episode last week as well about the tv show Nightfall where Tess and I just have a bit of a chat about the first episode of Nightfall it's a lot of fun <laughs> it's a very silly show just basically to give you a quick rundown of what you can expect for this podcast one of us reads a book each fortnight and then the other person will sort of talk to the other person about it so it's almost like an interview but also prompting discussion about certain themes that historical fiction can bring out for us. And we hope basically that it produced a nice lively debate. And we also want to make clear that it's not a comprehensive book or essay or a document about what it is. It's just basically our thoughts. It's not for you to quote in like an essay or anything like that. (laughs) We just generate a lot of thoughts when we're reading historical fiction and (laughs) find that a lot of people do as well. So it's nice to have that place to kind of vent our feelings. And like last time, though a little less intense, we are going to mention a couple of sensitive topics. So just so you're aware that we're going to talk a little bit about abortion and a little bit vaguely mentioning uh, violence against women 
in a sense. So just be careful about that if those are topics for you that you need to avoid. So Tess, <laughs> this fortnight yes. you read Tidelands by Philippa Gregory, which was published in late 2019. Just a heads up, we are going to talk about the whole book. So if you care about spoilers, come back when you have read it. Tess also said that she's going to say specifically if there's points that there's like a spoiler coming up or something like that <laughs> may time mark that for you but yes tell me <laughs> do you actually like this book um no <laughs> collectively <laughs> collectively no there are things about it that i quite liked which i'll obviously talk about the kind of different things yeah but yeah overall not a fan <laughs> interesting so that's but, the first two books that we haven't liked <laughs> <laughs> yeah but actually i was I was a bit I was sort of surprised because I was expecting to not like the way that she kind of represented part of the history. And actually, I didn't, I didn't mind that much. There's sort of some nuance to representing witchcraft narratives that I'll get into later. But I sort of thought that actually was kind of fine. Like, I didn't think it was that inaccurate in terms of the history. And as you can see, she's done quite a lot of research. It's sort of more about actually sort of how it's done and the story that she chooses to tell within the setting so okay. <laughs> yeah <laughs> if that makes sense like it's it's less about yeah. the because some books I read just drive me nuts because of sort of blatant inaccuracies and I sort of mm -hmm. think you've taken advantage of this kind of setting to actually just really argue a very kind of modern plot or something you know like mm -hmm. this wouldn't make sense in the time period and then I just don't enjoy it but it was less that and it was more other issues that I'm keen to talk about <laughs> excellent so okay. for listeners, could you just give us a quick synopsis of the book to give us an introduction of what the actual book's about? Yes. So, because it, it's quite new, I think, as well, I actually couldn't really find a lot of a synopsis online. There were a lot of sort of general descriptions of what it's about. But so that's a very good point. So mm -hmm. I'll start with a bit of a main plot synopsis, but also, so obviously there's going to be spoilers throughout, but also just be aware I'm going to kind of hold off the events of the last like 25 pages until later in the podcast, because that really Funny. does spoil... <laughs> the kind of yeah I think I can sort of talk about a lot of it without talking about that little bit until we get to that um, okay so cool. that's kind of a proper spoiler but I'll let you know before I'm going to say what that is <laughs> in case people kind of want to listen to the general ideas first and before they read it I think that does kind of leave a spoil anyway so ostensibly it's about this woman named Eleanor it's framed through her experiences in England in 1648 so the kind of tagline of the book is England 1648, a dangerous time for a woman to be different. So she is a, okay. a wise woman and a midwife who is living in the Tidelands, which actually the title gets dropped in like page two. So very like, I, I always get excited when I hear the title of a book within the book. It just um, makes me think of the um, cinema sins, how they always have roll credits <laughs> when someone says the like title. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, this is the second page. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So it's the, the tidelands of the Saxon shore, she says. It's a kind of marshy region on the south coast of England. The setting is established really quickly and I do want to talk more about the setting but I'll, obviously I'll do my, my plot first so we we'll start <laughs> with Eleanor meeting a young man she's 27 she tells us many times Eleanor meeting a young man in this graveyard his name's James he works for the royalist cause so okay. he's a catholic this is in the landscape of the civil war of 1648 so mm -hmm. for those who don't know it's a conflict between parliament and the monarchy in England uh, involvement from other groups as well and the Scots and blah 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 is kind of a big context to that but it's sort of about the rule of the kingdom and the, the power of the monarch and what how much you know power royalty should have within that within the the rule of the kingdom so it's very dramatic kind of civil war itself culminates in Charles the first the king at the time being put on trial and being executed which is like unheard of for the time parliament kind of taking that kind of power that's a setting that the, the book is set in and the idea of it is that you kind of experience how that has affected the whole of England that kind of conflict that's going on has okay. affected all these different communities but anyway I'll come back to that as well so Eleanor <laughs> waiting in the graveyard for the ghost of her husband because she hopes that he's dead he's abandoned them and it's sort of better for her if he's actually passed away as opposed to her being an abandoned wife he isn't dead we actually meet him later she hides James which starts this relationship between them which I don't think is are very believable at all but apparently they have this sudden passionate love and she kind of helps get him to the local lord who's secretly a royalist he's then employed as a tutor so he stays in the community and you have a bit of this plot between them he has to go away he's trying to sort of rescue the king there's various little plot lines with that with what he's trying to do they have a romantic 
time where they are locked away in about the middle of the book where they get locked away because they think that he has the plague because he, he passes out after he fails to save the king. So they lock him away and she's his, his plague nurse briefly where they're like sort of shut in this barn and no one else is allowed in because then they'll get the plague. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I see your, I see your <laughs> skeptical expression there, Larry. Yes. My God. Uh, and they like pretend that they, she doesn't know if he's got the plague yet so that they can have a little bit longer to have sex while they're in this barn Ooh. and it's all like very uh, dramatic and then he's he's fine he, he just has a fever so he's lost his faith and it's this big plot that he's like because obviously he's a priest he's a catholic priest he's sort of working for the royalists so he's not supposed to have romantic or sexual relationships with women in the real world so yeah he leaves back to france she realizes she's pregnant very dramatic she can't be pregnant because her husband's away and her daughter is supposed to get married and it's gonna like curse the and there's so much so much happens but anyway so she's like waiting for him to come back so then the second half of the book is mostly like bits and pieces of what james is doing to do with the the royalist plot to try and save the king and then eleanor being pregnant she contemplates kind of walking into the ocean and there's a very strange abortion plot line Oh, what? It kind of goes through the second half of the book that I will talk more about. <laughs> I did not daughter, expect that. <laughs> I know, because her daughter is also like set to be married. Her daughter's also pregnant, but that's fine as long as she gets married before she has the baby. So they're, they're working really hard to try and earn the dowry <laughs> so that they, so she can get married. But this, oh, it's so much. And then there's this ending and the last like 30 pages that is very dramatic that I would Alright, well, we'll talk about that later then. <laughs> oh my god. And I'll yet somehow it's so boring. Oh wow. <laughs> like so much and Oh yet. my god. <laughs> yeah. So you said you wanted to come back and talk about the setting. How about we uh, yes, set that up for okay. listeners? <laughs> You've touched a little bit yes, about what the I historical did. setting is. What year did you say it was set in again? 1648. So, okay, so Charles, it's like, right. that's where it starts. So Charles is executed in January 1649. Okay, so, so th- it's like most of a year that the book covers. Oh, okay. So it's sort of like heading yeah. towards, so, so people who are familiar with that period of history and know that mm-hmm. that's, that's where the book is going. But it's not. Yeah, you definitely know that. I mean, if you know, if you know what's happening, you do know that that's what's going on. So he goes, goes and like visits the king, and you're like, ah. Oh. Okay, sort of so bit, it, it's it, a little bit sad for him. Yeah. <laughs> well, know. he passes out. He has the plague. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so part of that history does play a part in the moving of the plot. Yes. So okay, interesting. What What I was most excited about reading this book like I said, is this idea that it was going to show this big, significant kind of event in history through the experiences of this completely separate kind of almost isolated community mm-hmm. on the coast. Mm-hmm. I was really, I thought that was going to be really good. I really enjoyed it in the beginning and you kind of, it starts in the Tidelands and I really like actually how she depicts the Tidelands, but then the book doesn't stay there. I realise that pretty quickly because she gives, there's not really chapters, there's sort of sections to the book and they say the year and then the place. So it's like, you know, the first one is Tideland, Sussex, Midsummer uh, Eve, yep, yep. June 1648. So you sort of know if she's telling you the location, there's probably going to be other locations. Mm-hmm. But that's what I hated about it is that it took us away to these big events. So it takes us to, where does she go, Newport with, with James, which is where he goes to try and rescue the king. She, she describes the trial of Charles in London. So she has James go to London and then Ned who is Eleanor's brother also goes and he's on the parliament side so you get two perspectives but it sort of it takes us away from what I thought was going to be the best part about this book which was using this historical setting in that really interesting way but then most of the big events of it kind of go to other places especially the trial so I thought that was really like really quite lazy writing in that yeah that's really annoying particularly because you know lay folk generally probably wouldn't have gotten that involved in those big Mm -hmm. issues and so it's kind of like here's a convenient plot to get the book to follow the execution of the king or leading up to the execution of the king and the the whole civil war starting yeah because like so there's one section earlier in the book where ned because ned had fought her brother had fought with the part with Cromwell, the parliament's forces at one point so that's why Mm -hmm. he sort of is invested in what they're doing so he gets a letter about the battle and he reads it out at the harvest dinner and i was sort of thinking while i was reading that you get these snippets of what's going on 
the way that people in that community actually would have gotten those snippets. And so I thought that was interesting. So he's reading this update from these letters and you're sort of like, oh, wow, like that's, that's these parts of the story that are being kind of transmitted through to the community. And you see the tension in, you know, she, she describes so much. She describes sort of how they worship at the local chapel and the fact that they have to hide, they don't use the altar anymore. And these kind of impacts on how the actual community operates. And I thought that was good. But again, then she takes us away. So Ned could easily have gone to the trial and we could have stayed with Eleanor. And then Ned could have come back and kind of told the story of what he experienced at the trial or something to kind of keep us in this, the kind of immediacy of that little part of the landscape that was what I really liked about some of it. It sounds to me a little bit like that's maybe what she originally intended for the the story to be, but maybe... I don't know whether it's because of like her publishers or editors mm. or something or decided that they needed that big historical draw card to kind of mm. market the book even. But then again, you know, she could have always intended for that sort of part of the book to be gradually included. Who knows? In her author's note for one of them, and actually we discovered <laughs> the author's notes are very confusing. So my copy of the book doesn't have one at all. And then different editions seem to have different versions of the author's notes section. Yeah. But and you've got, you've got like a sort of first edition, I think. Uh, yeah, I got actually it quite... bought it at the airport <laughs> just after it came out and then haven't read it until now. And yeah. then you discovered that. And so I was conveniently next to a bookshop and I went <laughs> in and I had a look and it had like a dear reader section in the back, which mm. is very fascinating. And then other editions that we found on online like have the author's notes so i wonder if you just have a printing printing error (laughs) no yeah um, anyway continue she she mentions in that that she chose to write i think it was in in an interview bit in one of the ones that we found that she chose to write it in third person not first person because she wanted to be able to go into other voices throughout the series because she's doing like this is the first book in a series and what she wants to do is trace the the family So she talks about being inspired by it's called the Foresight Saga, which is a, a series of books that was about a family's kind of changing prospects. And so that's what she was interested in, this idea of like returning to someone in that series, like returns to their ancestral roots and finds out that that was you know, a very different background to how they now live in a kind of mm. urban setting. And so she wanted to start this novel series that tracks the life of this family, starting from Eleanor's experiences and then potentially changing throughout the period. I have no idea how it's going to progress, but, you know, she's mentioned people really were interested in the story of her son, Eleanor's son, so maybe she's going to focus on that in the next one. I wasn't. I well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's fine, but I sort of was like, okay, like, yeah, he's going to go and have an apprenticeship. That's cool. Like, I think it's due for publication. It's a boy, year. isn't it? So, yeah. Anyway. We will find well, out. Yeah, we'll find out. So, yeah, she sort of wanted to, she says, you know, specifically she didn't write in first person, which she has, a lot of her other novels are in first person from the significant women in history, you know, other Berlin mm. girl, the most famous one. And, yeah, so she often does write in first person, but she's chosen not to because she wanted to be able to include other perspectives, even within this one, which I think is because she wanted to go to France mm. and London and stuff with the other bits of the story. So I think as well that maybe that had quite a... I mean, I'm glad she didn't write in first person because I don't like first person. Yeah. But I think that also had quite a big impact on me feeling, like not really feeling very kind of connected or invested in this character of Eleanor. I really feel like, though the book, like I said, books ostensibly about her, but I felt like really it was entirely structured around James's experiences. So it starts with her meeting him. And it kind of, all the significant points in the book are from an experience with him. So like them having sex in the barn and, and going to the trial and feeling like it felt a lot more like his journey. Yeah. It, um, from what you're saying, it sounds a little bit like it's quite disorientating experience to read. Like it's not, you're yeah. introduced, you're introduced to this character of Eleanor and then she kind of then sort of slips into the background of this story. Yeah. It's strange. I, I think that maybe is also not necessarily a historical issue for me, but just a personal thing with a lot of a lot of fiction, a lot of media that focuses around a, a single female character in a kind of particular way that actually really depicts all the ways that her life is shaped by men. So this is sort of the Star Wars issue. Like if you look at most of the recent Star Wars movies, they're all like, we have a strong female character and then every other person in the movie is basically male. So you kind of have this this sort of problem where if you have this 
supposedly lead female character, I think that people pay a lot less attention to the way they construct the rest of the world around that character. And so I, you know, I felt like she was the main character, but I didn't really get that investment in her as a character that I think I was supposed to. I think that's also other issues about how she's written, but it was really scaffolded entirely around his role in her life and his experiences of this event. That's so weird. It's odd for her as well, because I know she really does like writing about women. So yeah, I mean, maybe we should have a quick discussion about Philip Gregory here. It's probably a good spot yes. to talk about her. Cause I've done a lot of research and a lot of, I've got a quite an ex- extensive background mm. with w- working with Philippa Gregory's novels and <laughs> her herself. I'm currently writing an article that I want to submit about the way that she discusses her relationship with history as in comparison to Hilary Mantel. But what is your, your general knowledge about her and what, what is, <laughs> what's your relationship with Philippa Gregory? Yeah, definitely not as much as you (laughs) in an academic sense. I think in a popular sense, I have always, like she's one of those names that you kind of just know Mm -hmm. in terms of like, particularly if you have a mum that reads historical fiction like I do, and it is very, I know that's not in a sexist way, but in a gendered way, it is often, you know, she's writing to a particular audience. Um, most definitely so most people have probably heard of her other Boleyn girl like I said is probably one of the most famous ones of her books but she's yeah most well known for writing kind of influential historical women often in the Tudor period but also there's you know a lot of other she's written kind of across 16th to 18th centuries her main yep. um, kind of setting and she has a lot of criticism for her claims to accuracy <laughs> I think from historians especially and also sort of her characterization of a lot of the women she writes about. And there's a lot of drama about yeah. how she characterizes Anne and some of the plots around that. And then less on, I guess, material accuracy, which same with this story. You know, I sort of didn't care as much about, she, she puts a lot of work into describing, you know, the, the domestic setting that <clears throat> Eleanor is in and the way that the harvest operates and the different people involved. And I was like, yeah, okay, I believe that you have, read some archives good (laughs) you know but it's more about the kind of broader characterization and the broader narratives that she tells through that setting that I think people have more problems with from what I have gotten and from my experience of this book so yeah this is quite a different step to those so her other novels are largely about those kind of royal or rich higher class women who in really significant positions in these moments in history whereas this was supposed to be a step away from that although it kind of returns to her her first um, trilogy Wildacre, which I have read some of. It's in first person. So, oh boy. Yeah, that's apparently a, that's, that's a, mid-teens me didn't hate it as much as... <laughs> look, yeah, I think I started reading it... Uh, I read The Other Bullying Girl when I was in high school and then mm. I think I borrowed it from the uh, Adelaide Library and started reading it and I was like, yeah, I'm going to read this trilogy and I was like, oh, okay, this is... Uh, basically, there's an incest plot line, which I didn't expect. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, oh, you don't okay. expect maybe in some of these. Same as me with this abortion narrative. Yeah. I was like, sorry, what is happening? Sorry, where'd that come from? Anyway, uh, yeah, um, so but maybe yeah, if you want to actually fill in some more oh, great. <laughs> information about her as a. Well, she has written, she has written about wise women mm. before as well. She's written a novel mm. called The Wise, the wise Woman, um, which is set in Tudor England. So I was interested yeah. to know whether there was a connection there, but doesn't sound like there is at all. No, I thought so, that too. Yeah. It's really not, except again, except kind of the ending. Like it's, it's mentioned throughout and her relationship with midwifery is definitely important to it. And you get the sense that her being a, a wise woman is part of her role in the community. So that's the only real, that's okay. really the only way that that plays into it until literally like the very end. Okay. We'll but it really that, doesn't, but... yeah, it doesn't give us a lot of that, like, wise woman historical setting, in, I don't think. Yeah, because <laughs> anyway. she's got this weird obsession with witches and magic. And yeah. so, if, I don't know if you've read The White Queen, which is the first of her, well, first published, but not first chronologically, <laughs> novel <laughs> of the uh, Cousins War series, which is based around the women who were involved in the Wars of the Roses, and that's Elizabeth mm. Woodville the wife of Edward IV. And part of that is she is said to be a descendant of this water spirit from France through her mother. And therefore they give this sort of magical narrative to it. Like she affects the like mm-hmm. weather and stuff like that. It's really bizarre. And I don't, don't really like that at all. Again, it's in first person, mm-hmm. but yeah, Philip Gregory's, she makes some very weird choices in her narratives. <laughs> and from the sound of it, like she has carried that through faithfully in this book. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, in my experience, 
experience, I've slowly stopped reading her novels and sort of more read about her, like the commentary about her. And I find her fascinating, but I also find her an extremely strange anomaly of a person who is a little bit off the chain in terms of connection to reality. I shouldn't say that. That's my perception of her anyway. I sent Tess an article to uh, have a bit of a read while she was doing research for this as well, Mm. which was uh, called uh, Born a Writer, Forge a Historian. I don't know how much of that you actually read, but... I I literally read like a page and just didn't... I just didn't want to read it anymore. (laughs) There's this whole story that she tells, and the reason I'll relay it now is because I think it perfectly encompasses her attitude Mm. towards what history is and also her own self-representation as well. Basically, she tells this story about storytellers... It's really hard to summarize because it's so crazy. Storytellers are descendants from the children who were told stories to swerve to the left because the mammoth would gorge them or some shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I genuinely don't. Yeah, basically she's trying to say that storytellers are like, they're born. They're born. (laughs) And that's who she is. It's inherited. It's inherited. I'm pretty sure you could find the article somewhere. It's on JSTOR, I think. So that's open access at the moment. So you can track it down if you want. But it's it's genuinely bizarre. And it, and it carries through to her sort of framing of her own historian abilities as well. You know, she's written a nonfiction companion to the, the Cousins War series where she has an introduction which basically doesn't... She outlines what she understands historical study to be and doesn't actually know what historical studies to be. So she gets very, like, uppity about the idea that, you know, historians are biased which is something that historic, like people who criticize historians for their like rigidity and framework and, you know, their, their methodology, they get, they usually get criticized as being biased. Whereas like we would say as a historian, it's based on interpretation and we use Mm. as much source material to gather and make that interpretation as viable as possible. I don't know. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think that part of a historic, like historical practice is knowing that your perspective is always going to shape what you write about the past. So yeah. And that's <laughs> a huge part of, you know, what has happened over the last 30, 40 years yeah. of historical yeah. study is like, we've got to recognize that there are limitations, but it doesn't stop us from doing what we're doing. Whereas Gregory takes offense kind of mm-hmm. to that idea and that, you know, her work is as valid as historical nonfiction. Mm. Anyway, she, she talks actually, <laughs> And one thing that I think is interesting in her author's note for this book, and I'm not sure if she's mentioned this before because I haven't read her other recent work, mm-hmm. but um, that she is currently writing a nonfiction history book about a history of all English women. Um, she says this hasn't been done, which is interesting in itself. They obviously... No, it hasn't been done because it's impossible to write one history of all English women. But there are a lot of amazing histories of women of various social statuses, positions, roles, everything within English history. So anyway. That's bizarre. Um, That's really bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And so she says this is like one issue that our historical records are from the perspective of like the powerful and therefore we don't know enough about the women and that's what she's like. She's going to kind of write this book, (laughs) which I mean, that taps in a lot. And this is why I find the conversation that you're having about Tidelands really interesting is because she's Mm. very feminist. Like she's very hardcore feminist to the point where she despises, she despises male, especially male historical characters. So in in an author's note for The King's Curse, she describes Henry VIII as a like psychotic serial killer. Now, anyone with any sort of historical perspective would realize that you know you can't really say that about anyone who lived in historical setting, especially when there was no like you know there's no term serial killer until the seventies, <laughs> and also he was in his right to do what he did because that was the way that they thought. In so the context, yeah, it's the context, and I find that really disheartening, and I find it worrying if people were reading these afterwards and thinking, oh yeah, that's that's really true. It's really interesting. Let's talk about that. <laughs> well, one thing actually, sorry, did you want to say more about that? No, but I was just going to say it oh, kind of tie, mm. it ties into Tidelands because mm. she's been so vehemently anti-men as characters or positive characters in, in her books previously and then oh. from the sounds of it it's just jumped the shark with this one and she's James is not a positive character by the end oh okay <laughs> no he, but he's, he's the main character that's that's the he's basically the main character and you, yeah, you do like weird. you like him in the beginning because she likes him so what one thing right that I think with that is that she says in her author's note etc that she wants what she wants us to do is see Eleanor not through others' opinions, but in terms of like how Eleanor 
or women value themselves. That's the kind of idea. She said, you know, at a time when women, I forget what the quote is, but you know, she, she values Counted herself. for nothing. Counted, Counted for nothing. nothing. She yeah. values herself. But actually the way that she's written this book, and I think maybe this is an issue of her not normally writing in third person, but the way that she's written this book, basically most of what we get about Eleanor is other people's opinions of her. And even the way that Eleanor, like Eleanor bases her opinion of herself on others' opinions in a way, because right, so right at the beginning, this is one thing that stuck out to me immediately and I hated the whole time. And <laughs> it's why it really surprises me when you're like, she's such a feminist, is that James says he didn't expect to find a woman like you in a place like this. And she repeats this throughout the novel to herself. Like multiple times, it's like she sat there thinking about how he'd said a woman like you in a place like this. Ah, oh, a woman like you? Like she's so happy that he sees her as like this different, the I'm not like other girls of Tidelands. Like that's, that's what came across to me is this, in, in order to try and make Eleanor exceptional, she basically just shits all over every other person, a particularly woman in the Tidelands. Like it's this vibe that Eleanor is special and different to the rest of them. And there's this quote that I hated <laughs> as well, where he talks about that, where he's like, okay, I'm gonna read it because it made me so cross. <laughs> where he's like, he's like bitching about all of the, he shivered with distaste, you know, he, could, he felt that he could not bear the ugliness of these people's lives on the very edge of the shore with their loves and hates ebbing and flowing like the muddy tide, their anger roaring like the water in the mill race with their hatreds and fears as treacherous as the hushing well, blah, 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 blah. He wished himself back with his own people where cruelty was secret, violence was hidden and good manners were more important than crime. Whoa. Because he's, ri he's rich. He's a lord. Uh. Well, he would, he would be except that he joined the church. I was like, cool. So this is... Like the way that it's written, you don't necessarily get the sense that that is like James's perspective, which isn't great because it's in third mm. person. You sort of get the idea that like, he can't bear the ugliness of these people's lives. It's not like he thinks these people's lives are ugly. It's like, he can't bear how ugly their lives are. Do you know what I, do you know what I mean yeah, in terms yeah. of how it's written? That is during the romantic sequestered away in a barn scene that he's getting angry about something she tells him about her past but you get this weird like I think I think it fits into her other writing as well because it feels like she's trying to say I, I write about more influential women and you maybe you wouldn't expect there to be just as important and interesting a woman in this setting but there is like that's this sort of this really weird vibe she sounds confusing about how she, she it's so confusing how she kind of tries to construct Eleanor as this really interesting yeah. and unique person actually does the worst shitty feminist thing you can do, which is make it seem like the only way to make someone seem special is make all the other women seem shit. Yeah, that's <laughs> what that's very like mean girls mentality, mm -hmm. really, isn't it? It just sounds like she's she has she's gone in with this goal and she doesn't hasn't quite sort of nutted out exactly how to achieve it. And I don't know whether that's Maybe. Be because she's, like, deviating from her usual, like, she's comfortable in the Tudor court and now she's writing about some, some other period. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I Seems mean, really maybe. Confusing. But, yeah, it really, like, so many times she reiterates. And it's sort of always, it's often through James's perspective. It's like James is in this place and he doesn't like it. But you get this, like, sense of how gross and not nice the Tidelands are mm -hmm. and how, how bad it is for Eleanor that she has to live there. Like, she doesn't. She's never going to leave. You get the sense that she can't leave, but you also, it's not good. It's not a nice place for her. And you sort of think, oh, actually, what about all these other characters that are within this setting? Like, are we saying that they are also therefore like they just suck and Eleanor is special? We yeah. actually, like, it sort of seems like, because she talked about that idea of wanting to write about the kind of, the, the historical roots of a family to look back from when you are kind of, you know, living in an urban setting to find mm -hmm. that actually your background is a kind of very poor farming community mm. or whatever. Like she's trying to show this setting is so awful, but this exceptional woman is going to end up, her family is going to end up better than this. I actually think it's just really like classist. That is really classist. Yeah, right. It's just like, okay. Like yeah. majority and of people would have ancestors who were from that situation. You know, it's not, you know, yeah. no one's hundred percent descended from royalty and if they are there's like a very small percentage of people in the world but it's just that the fact that the, that that's bad that you can you sort of describe it as like improvement to have now been in the urban setting as though there's something wrong with living in a farming community or something you know what i mean like that's the sort of that's what so i weird. didn't 
like about it. And I also think in terms of the history of witchcraft, that the way that it conveys, like this is the way that that, that quote that I read out and this sort of vibe about like the, the suspicions and the hate of this community towards someone who's different makes it seem like that is a trait of small communities and lower class communities and not a trait of the elite as uh-huh. though, right? Like he's sort of like, I want to return to where it's all like secretive and people aren't actually mean to each other in public. And it's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> and I think it really dismisses the church kind of, anyway, yeah. Yeah, no. Well, that's probably a good segue to talk about the historical stuff that's in this book. So <laughs> how did you, because for my impression of the book, it was, it's mostly about witchcraft and the blurb has the whole thing about the witch trials being on and stuff like that so (laughs) I picked I picked picked, yeah and then from what you're saying that really doesn't play much of a part in the book itself generally no so weird yeah it sort of is like one element it sort of feels like she's played like stacks on to make every possible disadvantage Eleanor could have on her so her husband has left her she's in this community she's scared of open water so she doesn't want to go out on the boat she doesn't have any money but there's all these kind of different and one of those factors is that she is a midwife and so she gets the kind of suspicions of of everyone around her and the way the story is constructed is that you that it's not true that she that all these things like so she she collects what they call fairy gold, which is like weird old coins and bits and pieces of like, I, I, it's tricky to get a sense of what they actually mean by it. But I think it's mostly sort of like old, old pennies that have washed up on the shore and stuff like that. And the part of the final plot. So now this is a proper spoiler for what happens in the last little bit of the book. If you don't want to know, <laughs> stop listening now. Is that to make the dowry, her daughter steals a coin purse from the, the miller, the miller's wife, who was saving that money for her own daughter. Eleanor is one of the people who knew where that money was and her daughter steals it and replaces it with the fairy gold that Eleanor collects. So it looks like it's still full because she yep. wouldn't notice until so that she could secretly replace it once she earns money. Yep. And then obviously... Mrs. Miller goes to try and take something out of the purse and is like, this is fairy's gold. Eleanor stole it. She's a witch. And you get this really (laughs) dramatic, like 20 pages of this sudden everyone hates her and they're all shouting that she's a witch and she has to go on trial. She, she's ducked of sorts. She's, she's actually tied to the mill wheel and, and put under the water. Um, And it's this very, there's been like no real action for like how many, 300 and something pages. And then suddenly it's like, what? But it's, it's weird because that, that ending, she has actually, well, she hasn't done something wrong because she didn't do it, but her daughter did actually steal something. Mm. So, so she sort of spends the book setting it up like it's dangerous to be a woman because you might be suspected of witchcraft and she didn't actually do anything wrong. She's not a witch. She's just like practicing herbal medicine. And then the thing that actually gets her on trial is an actual physical thing that was stolen. Like there's an actual crime that was committed. So that I find very odd, but yeah, I probably should talk a a bit more, I guess, about general witchcraft history stuff first before I kind of explain that. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting because I mean, maybe not a huge amount of people would have a concept of what the witch trials were Mm. going into reading this book. And you do not get a sense of it. Yeah, you get a really, it's really complex European-wide, even American-wide mm. phenomena. So mm-hmm. yeah. the fact that it's kind of just sprung with like mm. maybe a few little hints in there generally and like going in with the idea that this book is going to cover it is a bit bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I think that her intent is to show that there were like, you know, sneaking suspicions and like it shaped people's perceptions of each other. And then it could be this thing that could dramatically and sort of suddenly change your life from what appears to be sort of nothing. So women who had been living, like her mom had been living as a midwife before her for ages and there was no problem. But now we have this changed culture in this century where these kind of witch trials come in that suddenly it could be a thing. But I don't think that it works. <laughs> but yes, witchcraft is my, I, I love the histories of witchcraft. This is what I research, represent of witchcraft and which is in popular media. I look at video games, but obviously that's involved kind of quite a lot of learning about witchcraft history in general. Mm-hmm. And like you said, this is sort of a European and also, you know, the colonies in America, but kind of a, a huge phenomenon across these a, a few centuries. And there's a couple of things to consider when we try and understand what 
we actually mean by witches and witchcraft in this period because so the key issue is most of the sources that we have for witchcraft are accusations or kind of treatises about how to identify or how to torture or deal with witches. So it's, you know, it's people claiming what witches had done to them, usually in like legal circumstances. There's questions about whether the actual torture meant that people were confessing completely, you know, completely untrue things. There was a, a culture of fear and of kind of stereotypes already that were spreading and stories about like particularly like the Sabbath is one of the narratives that goes around which is about the witches going off into the night and having this kind of secret meeting and those stories were circulating because print culture had also started to develop so those Mm. stories are really circulating and a lot of women would have heard them and they are accused of the thing they say they didn't do it and then they're tortured and then they say, ah, yes, I know all of the things I'm supposed to say that I have done. And then they say them. So there's not really any evidence in a lot of places from, you know, whether or not there are actually people out there who are identifying themselves as witches in a way that is separate from the kind of trial persecution culture of witches as a kind of, as a heresy, because that's what the issue was, was that it was against church practice of the time, be that Catholic or Protestant later. So it's difficult, there's there's ongoing debate, right, about the idea of like an actual witch cult. So that sort of emerged largely at the beginning of the 20th century with a historian named Margaret Murray, who's quite a kind of complicated (laughs) person. And all of that is like pretty much discredited now. But she had this idea about an organized religion that was the continuation of ancient pagan goddess worship and that there were women practicing this goddess pagan religion and they were the ones being then persecuted as witches whether or not there was any actual organized religion called witchcraft in any way it's very hard to tell because they're not leaving the type of evidence that actually really tells us what they were doing and then there's also in the 1970s uh, of late 60s and 70s radical feminists really attached onto this idea of the witch and the the witch trials as a history of persecution against women and violence against women. And a lot of the narratives that we see about midwives, about healers and women who were acting as healers and wise women within their communities, suddenly being unreasonably unfairly persecuted as witches, largely because there was a new medical profession that was male dominated and they wanted Mm -hmm. to eliminate the competition. Those narratives, really come out of the 1970s and out of that kind of movement. Not to say that they didn't, that, that there weren't plenty of midwives who were accused of being witches, but it's absolutely definitely not as simple as that. No, <laughs> I mean, we, so. have, we have midwives roughen on the other side of the trial accusing witches, like, because they had medical knowledge, so they were used to identify witches. Heaps of men persecuted as witches. Obviously, it is very particularly gendered, and there are a lot of treatises, like the, the Malleus Maleficarum, this kind of most famous... Mm-hmm text that are really gendered and they talk about the ways that women due to their gender due to their sex were as they as we would say both at the time were more susceptible to the charms of the devil because that was the idea of witchcraft as you you've made a pact with the devil to get your powers Mm -hmm. and so women were supposedly more susceptible to that because of their very nature and that's where you see accused in a particular way but that's not to say that all the people accused were women. So it's difficult because these narratives, like like the midwife unfairly being accused of witchcraft, it's not that they didn't happen. It's just that we can't have this kind of one dominant narrative based on only evidence like the Malleus as a treatise about yeah. witches. Um, yeah. Because it's this, it's so much more complicated and so much more difficult to understand as a period of history than that. It's not to say that I don't think that someone like Eleanor definitely could have existed, and this probably this story probably did play out in a lot of ways in different places. But it is a very specific narrative to choose to retell, mm-hmm. and the reason that it is so popular in popular culture because now we see that all the time, like the women that these women are like victims of a, a system of mass mm. violence against women comes out of that movement of, his, of not historians actually, but radical feminists, some of them were historians, in the 60s and 70s, which really sort of shaped popular representations. And I don't think popular representations have really taken on any of the, or much of the scholarship that has happened since then. Mm. <laughs> so you see the way that that movement really shaped popular representations, but then other works... I mean, it's still a big hasn't. deal. <laughs> it's still a big deal in historiographical uh, study at the moment as well, mm-hmm. like a lot of the emotions frameworks yes. are looking at this and like the specific period timelines mm-hmm. is set in 
is interesting because it follows on from like you've got about 40 years earlier James the first slash six of Scotland he he wrote a, like didn't he write a treatise against witches and he was very big on the sort of finding witches and there was quite a a sort of a boom in witch trials. I don't think there was heaps mm. heaps going on during the Tudor period. I mean, you've got a few select cases. You've got, I don't know, it's debatable about whether Anne Boleyn was actually accused of being a witch or not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But there's a few cases of it. Whereas, you know, there's kind of almost like this sort of professionalization of witch hunting and witch finding. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, people might be familiar with the term the witch finder general who mm-hmm. makes a nice little reference in a uh, good omens in omens <laughs> thing, uh, but mm. yeah, it's it's almost like this professionalization that we've got to you know find all these people, and it seems odd to me that instead of focusing maybe on that culture, Philippa Gregory's changed a little bit to sort of being like this is what's happening historically, or oh, and then the witch witch stuff happens. Yeah, because I think it could have been a really interesting point because I think that often obviously it's it's really difficult to represent everything that is going on in the world in a particular yeah. year so if you're writing historical fiction you know you can't talk about everything that might have been going on yeah. but I think it could have been a really interesting way to look at the different things that would have affected someone's life in 1648 because also the the civil war was so much about religion was so mm-hmm. much about her religious beliefs because you know the royalists are catholics and the parliament side were protestants mm-hmm. so like the the religious conflict in that also really informs or is kind of connected to the the religious side to the witch trials because that was mm. very much to do with which witches were heretics as, right yeah. so there's that and so were catholics according to protestant beliefs being the mainstream kind of they want a catholic ritual became a kind of a type of heresy against Protestant worship and the other way around. So Mm. the way that that could have all tied together, it would have been really interesting to see her kind of reflect on how the political and the religious landscape of the whole of England in that time tied into the witch trials. Cause you don't see a lot of that often witch trials are kind of seen as the, like if you've got fiction about it, that's the only thing you really are talking about. It's just the trials, which is fair. Cause it's like, right. You can't talk about everything that's going on. That could have been cool. Well, what I was going to say about but, that is she but, establishes it as, yeah, she establishes it as a perfect setting for that as well because it's such yeah, a small community. And exactly. quite a lot of what we know is that these witches were accused in these small communities mm-hmm. because they're easy targets, but also like, you know, there's less urbanization and they're kind of sticking to traditional means of doing things. Mm-hmm. So it just seems such like a waste <laughs> to me. Like, Exactly. Like that's yeah. what that's what made me so frustrated is I was like, this is such a cool idea and this could be really good. And then I just was so disappointed. And the other thing that I have an issue with in terms of <laughs> trial stuff, right, is this ducking. So this is the, the dramatic ending, right? She doesn't die. She survives it. And I, as soon as it got to this is again, this is like 20 pages from the end of a nearly 400 page book. So it's like the very end of this book. It's a big book. It's a big book. It's, I mean, mine is, mine is also like, I think a larger copy. I don't know if others would be different, but for me, right? Mm-hmm. And she's accused of witchcraft. She's accused of stealing this gold using witchcraft. And then they have this trial. It's very weird because they have the trial at, so the, 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 the husband of the Miller, Mrs. Miller, the, the Miller himself. Mr. Miller. Um, Mr. Miller. And <laughs> I don't actually, I just can't actually remember if that's their surname or if they're just the Millers. Because oh, probably. I think it's the surname. <laughs> and James, who happens to be there because he's the tutor and he's back as the tutor of the, of the Lord's son, like conduct the trial at the farmstead because they don't want Eleanor to die. The two of them don't want her to die. And they know that if she goes to the next city, which is a bigger kind of city town, then mm-hmm. it'll be a proper trial and she'll die. So they don't mm-hmm. want her to go there. So they try and like conduct this sort of little trial in their own context, which is fine. I think that that may have happened in different ways. That's okay. But then they do the ducking drowning trial, right? historically, I mean, it wasn't only used for witches. It was also used for other things. But when it was used for witchcraft accusations, my understanding, and I tried to do a bit of research, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. I like, have been to the, the Criminal History Museum in Rottenburg, which is one of a town in Germany, and I kind of thought about, I looked at some like photos from the museum I went to there and stuff. So you're ducked, which means usually I had a ducking chair, and you're tied to the chair and put underwater. Sometimes it was not. They just like literally tied their limbs and threw them into a lake. But like you're, you're put under the water, if you come up alive, then you actually were aided by the devil to survive and therefore you are a witch and therefore you're hanged. If you come up dead, you were innocent, but you're dead. 
So as soon as she was accused of witchcraft and they were like, we'll, we'll dunk her in the water, I was like, oh my God, she's going to die. Like this book ends with her death. Yeah. That's so interesting. Because I was like, that's so, I didn't expect that, right? I yeah. was like, cool. That's really cool. And I was reading, this is the most energized I'd been the whole time. I was reading this last 20 pages. You're like, oh my God, she's going to die. And she comes up alive after the very dramatic ordeal. They like, see that she's pregnant because they ripped her tunic off or whatever. I don't know. She's like tied to the the thing and she comes up alive it's very dramatic because she hates deep water so she's like traumatized mm. uh, and they just let they just let her leave they're like there's your proof she's not a witch and then she leaves so her daughter and i was like what <laughs> so gregory's fundamentally misrepresented what that process so, is like i thought it was going to be really traumatic and really intense and it was just sort of this weird like i know that i'm supposed to care so much as this happens but i don't the Maybe main person yeah, that you would care about in a kind of as an investment in this moment is Eleanor's daughter because she's watching and she's so upset. But you, you're really mad at her daughter because she just stole the thing and let her mum cop the credit for it. So yeah. I actually was like, I hate Alice at this point. I don't want her. Yeah. And then, and then, so I don't care about anyone in this moment pretty much. Yeah. Interesting choices at the end there. Very odd It's almost for like the whole book. It seems to me as well, it's almost like from what you're saying, Philippa Gregory had an idea and the Mm -hmm. ending was the idea. And Mm -hmm. in order to get to that point, she's had to tell a different story. And Mm -hmm. then, yeah, it's... Because, I mean, people did survive witchcraft accusations. Like, that's that's fine. If that was, like, the story she wanted to tell, but I just don't think she really told it very well. But then the other thing, right, is this this pregnancy abortion. Oh, yes. So I was going to ask you to just. Oh my god! So, so she finds out she's pregnant. It's. I thought this was very heavy-handed. She finds out she's pregnant, and as a, as a story, she she realizes her relationship to the pregnancy is very odd. But she's like very invested in this baby that she's carrying because it's James's baby. And when her daughter finds out that she's pregnant, she tells her that she should end it because she obviously it would ruin her daughter's life if they if she doesn't get married before people find out her mom's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she like Eleanor describes like the, the brutality of this abortion she could perform on herself. And she's like, you know, you have to stab into the womb, like blah blah blah. I, you know, you take these herbs and and conveys how like horrid it would be. And she's like, I'm not doing that. And then she she like contemplates walking into the ocean instead. And she's like got her head on her belly. And she goes through this whole like mental process of thinking about how she's delivered all these babies as a midwife and like bringing life into the world as this beautiful thing and blah, blah, blah. And therefore she's like keeping the baby. And then when James comes back, he's really upset. He's like, you can't have a baby. I can't. He comes back in order to take her away to his family home. He's going to renounce being a priest and take up the family title again. And he wants her to come and live with him. Finds out she's pregnant. He's like really angry. He's like, you have to end it. Don't you know how to do that? Like you're a midwife, you're a wise woman, you have herbs. And she she gets mad at him, but she gets this weird like calm about it. And she suddenly seems so detached and it's very boring. Like she does this, okay, then I'm not coming with you. Like that's the sense that you sort of get, okay. Like she's just, you're like, so, so what are you going to do? But she sort of is so mad that James as well would say, you know, you need to end pregnancy. And she just keeps talking about how there's this sort of potential life and she's got this, the, the, their son, she somehow knows that it's a boy. She's decided, yep, yep, that's a big thing. She's like, I have this intuition. And I was like, uh-huh. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I've done some research. I don't know a lot about abortions historically. I don't think many people do, there to be was honest. <laughs> the concept of like the quickening, which is this idea of like a certain point in the pregnancy yeah. where you, you couldn't do it after that. Because the, so baby, the baby would start yeah. moving in the womb. Yeah. yeah. So I got the sense that in the beginning when she's first pregnant, actually it would have been fine culturally and whatever for her to have ended it. No one would have known except her and her daughter. And also she does have access to all of those herbs. So I think even though I guess it is like physically possible to have this plot happen in this century it's not like historically inaccurate mm. it absolutely felt like a pro-life uh, i was gonna say that it comes you know, across really pro-life <laughs> mm, like like she's using this narrative to say don't abort babies they are this beautiful life form blah 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 like that that's how it's very weird she's always had very intense relationships between protagonists and their children like mm. i remember reading when i was reading um the other willing girl 
Mary's first son is born is just this like huge like she's in love and there's no like this baby is the best thing that's ever happened to me kind of thing so it doesn't surprise me she's carried that through but yeah that everything you were saying strikes me as being very Mm pro-life and very like Mm -hmm. unusual considering that she is a feminist yeah and it's very political like it's sort of quite unnecessary she didn't need to write it in that way from the kind of I'm a midwife, I care about babies. Like she, she easily could have just done it in a way like, you know, we're going to have this life together, the baby won't be a problem or the baby will be a problem and like talk about it in more practical terms in order to convey the same plot. So I didn't think that it actually needed that weird kind of emotional language, that weird sort of very, mm. in the current circumstance that this book is being published in, very like political mm. kind of narrative to it. I mean, I guess yeah. you could argue that she's being feminist by deciding to not go with James to keep the baby. Yes. But I think the fact that way that she's described it means that there's like that, mm. that choice element has been taken away from it. It's more just like she feels so rooted in this pregnancy and that this mm. child is, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this might just be me as well, but the fact that she so quickly says like, this is my son felt also very much like, like she was willing to die when she was accused as a witch. She was like going to be dumped. And I was listening to that and I was like, she's dying for her daughter so that her daughter can have a better life. And I kind of don't hate that. That would happen. Like that's, I actually cared about that narrative for a hot minute. Except also <laughs> I was really like, I felt so sorry for her through this whole book. Her daughter is shit to her. <laughs> I was so mad about it. But I was like, that's interesting as a mother-daughter. You know, she really loves her children. She doesn't yeah. have a very good life. And she's realized that actually her daughter has now got this future set up and her son is off being an apprentice. And actually, if she dies now, that like they're okay. Because in the beginning, it was kind of this sense that, you know, she had to, she had to get a boat. She had to earn money so that they could have their futures. Yeah. And that was what it was sort of about. So it actually felt like the decision she was making was like my son, as in this unborn baby, when she'd barely even gotten pregnant, mm-hmm. my son's life is more important than mine. Like, you know, the, the, the male fetus in my tummy is more important than my life. So therefore I just go along with it. Like I know it isn't supposed to necessarily come across that way. I just think that because I'm trying to consider, I guess, like the feministness of the story. Therefore I automatically sort of think like, well, what is the gender balance like who is who is positioned where in this narrative yeah that definitely sounds like Alan or every step that she's given is it takes a step backwards and like I'm second to James I'm second to my son honestly Um, yeah yeah everything about it just felt like all the different ways that she actually didn't value herself at all (laughs) that's so Um, funny (laughs) even though I mean part of I think that narrative was supposed to be she does value she values herself so she's making the choice to do the thing she wants to do which is to keep the baby but that isn't it was just weird it's not how it comes across yeah it definitely came across i think as using the historical setting to tell a a particular modern narrative that she wanted to tell okay (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean yeah i think that's very common for witchcraft histories ever since like i was talking about the 70s movement ever since particularly since then yeah. yeah it's such an invested period of history like people people don't write about it without an opinion yeah. <laughs> um, and ever since then there has been so much fiction about witches and all of it takes a very usually a very kind of particular stance yeah so that's yeah yeah interesting <laughs> Like, it's hard to form an opinion on it. I don't know what I think. It's yeah, I know. It's strange. really hard to, like, like I, I think it's similar. It. <laughs> similar to, like, the Tantos mm. of Auschwitz where I was kind of, like, I I don't know why they've made these decisions to, like, mm. yeah, it just seems really disjointed and confusing and it, you kind of, like, what, what what's happened here, you know? Do you have any further reading about the book that you would like to recommend to listeners or anything? Um. Yes. I think it's probably going to be easier for me to put that in show notes. Yeah, no There's worries. a couple of, but yes, it's, I think witchcraft history, if you are coming at it as a kind of popular general public person and you're interested in some of the academic writing, it's really actually quite difficult to work out like what to read because so much of it became outdated quite quickly. Um, like, you, you know, things that were published in the 90s. One thing you can easily look at is the stats that they use. So how many witches actually were killed in this period because the stats that were kind of brought up in the 70s became huge and are very dramatic and are like there are millions of women but then actually that that those figures were completely inaccurate and so that's one way but yeah I I think some of it won't necessarily be super public access so some of it might be a bit tricky but there are some that I found that particularly at the moment you can access um, because things like JSTOR are kind of a bit more Mm -hmm. open but you might be able to get in libraries and stuff that 
I just sort of like to say, here are a couple of academic books that we know at the moment are the, the most sort of recent, accurate as as such research on the on the period, particularly for, for which stuff. So a few cool uh, Australian academics who are working on mm. European historical which uh, witch trials and witchcraft and stuff like that. So yeah, and yeah. like you said, emotions and is emotions, a, yeah. a, a great kind of area at the moment of research into witchcraft histories. So that's yeah, um, definitely that's thinking about history of emotions is sort of a big project, but a kind of movement at the moment for people who aren't aware who are listening. That's sort of about thinking about the way that actually emotions are historically specific. So the way that we think about say something in the most obvious one, something you know being happy at a certain period like what we mean if we are talking about a a particular emotion or a particular way of being now it's very different to what that may have meant Mm -hmm. in a different period so in order to understand the way that people were relating to the world we actually really need to historically kind of contextualize these different understandings of of feelings and ways of being in in different periods you can't just read something and take it at the, the face value of what you think it would be presenting based on your understanding of that Context is, that make, is king. Is that, do you think? Yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good, that a good summary, summary of that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's been applied to witchcraft in really interesting ways to think about how to read these sources. So, and particularly in like community emotion as well, like mm. you know, the rumor mill and all that sort of stuff spilling up. Yeah. So I guess we should just cool. generally wrap this up. Now. <laughs> we should. Um, yeah. Thank you for all that information, though. I think it's gonna it's gonna be good for listeners to get a general vibe of the book being probably a little bit. Confused confusing and maybe not as straightforward as one might hope. (laughs) Yeah, I think my overall takeaway in terms of the history of it is that not necessarily that any of it is inaccurate specifically, Mm -hmm. but the way that she characterizes it and the narratives that she chooses to tell are quite selective and invested. So really do think about what sort of modern politics, what modern cultural societal aspects might be influencing the way she has chosen to write this story and the elements she's chosen to include that would be almost like philippa gregory almost Almost. (laughs) i wonder what she would think about that i have no idea totally (laughs) impartial that's 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 it Uh, um would you recommend it to listeners i'm getting the vibe Um, you wouldn't like, I think that if you go into it critically, it's not the worst, but okay. I, I personally didn't enjoy it that much because of, because of all those various reasons I talked about. But again, I really like the way she describes the tidelines and I quite enjoyed that, those elements. Yeah, okay, cool. So I think, you know, maybe, but it's not like, a, oh my gosh, you have to go read this, but I'm not yeah. saying, you know, <laughs> it's the worst, but. Not the worst, not the best. Be aware. <laughs> yeah. Be aware. It's quite, it is quite easy to read though. I think that's our take home uh, so, take home thing. It's <laughs> like be aware of what you're reading because it is not as simple yeah. as it looks. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Cool. So after all of that, do you have any uh, <laughs> any non-historical fiction recommendations to share with our listeners at all, Tess? Oh, no, because what I'm watching at the moment is historical fiction. I'm watching The Great on, I think oh, it's on Stan. So I totally want to do a bonus episode about this. Because I actually, I mean, I was excited about it anyway, but also yeah. one of my friends actually worked in the, on the show. Um, oh, so cool. In the, in the art department. As I'm not sure exactly what she was doing. She was an assistant, so doing like props and, and various elements. Oh, wow. It, which is really cool. So I was really excited to watch it for that reason anyway. But I love, I love a show that just straight up does the, some bits of this are true and like is sort of honest, like sort of, you know, the Knight's Tale vibe of yeah. you're going to dance to David Bowie and we all know that it's ridiculous. Have yeah. fun. And so I was excited to see what they do with it and I've been really enjoying it. It's just, it's Excellent. ridiculous. Well, it's, maybe. It's fun. Keep an eye out for a, a bonus episode coming up about that. In I think that's a great book. idea. <laughs> yeah. What about you? What have you, anything non-historical from your side? <laughs> I mean, it is historical in a sense, but <laughs> I actually read, read Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own through properly ah. for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read it for, I think we did it in the first year history unit back in like 2009. I read it and it I couldn't, I couldn't quite, grapple with it intellectually but I read it just because I'm going through a bit of a Bloomsbury group phase at the moment (laughs) I loved it I thought it was hysterical Mm -hmm. I think I think it was really funny and I think that's something that I don't think actually gets conveyed that that much about Virginia Woolf she's very serious she's very like you know we're we're, you know divulged and I just really enjoyed the the humor of 
like imagining what life would have been like for Shakespeare's sister. <laughs> like that, taking that with a sort of like idea mm. of, of humor is really good. And um, mm. other than that, I watched Vita in Virginia as well, which is set in the 1920s. And that's very, it's an interesting one to consider. But I am working on a little passion project about all of those things. So um, look out for that. I'll tell you when it comes out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And next time we are for our podcast as well, you probably, I think you, you mentioned you've already started reading and working on it anyway. Um, so we're covering a completely different topic. Hillary, you're reading Into the World, a novel, a novel set in the 18th century. Is that right? Yeah, yep. Towards the very end of the 18th century. And it's by cool. Stephanie Parkin, who is a New Zealand-born, Tasmanian-based author. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's I've done a lot of research for it already. I went down a bit of a, a rabbit hole, which I will talk about <laughs> on the pod in the fortnight's time. But it's really enjoyable in books. So it's a book that I liked. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so yeah. I, uh, um, I think mine will be one that I liked as well. So it's good to shake it up a bit for next yeah. month. Next month, books we um, like. <laughs> and we, we will be announcing that kind of properly on our social media and stuff at the start of each month, like we said, yep. what the what the books will be for that month. So keep an eye out for that officially. But yeah. Keep an eye out for our bonus episodes, which we're squirreling away on at the moment. Yes. And we will just be, you know, dropping those with excitement when Whenever we kind of work yeah. on something, it not, won't necessarily be in the schedule at the start of the month, though sometimes we might announce it in advance. We'll see how we go. But yeah. 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 We'll plenty be plenty of get, exciting things coming. Yeah. We're hoping to get some feedback on, like, on some mm. things to watch as well. So we don't mm. want to just be like, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I have had a couple of recommendations. So thank you to people who've already suggested some books we could read. That's great. Keep them coming. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever uh, you can find us. We're on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook. If you want to give us any feedback or anything via email, we are historicalfrictionspod at gmail.com. And if you're listening to this, you already know but you can find us here on anchor and on lots of other platforms like spotify and google podcasts so hopefully you've already subscribed but if you haven't do that so you know when it's coming out yeah and we actually haven't had any emails yet so somebody just sent us an email to know that we're actually reaching people (laughs) yeah we have had comments from people but we've had comments but we haven't had any Mm. sort of like emails from anyone that would be nice to hear from people yeah (laughs) not that we're pleading or anything Okay, well, so thanks so much for joining us and we look forward to delving into some exploration historical fiction next time. Until then, happy reading!